Hey everyone, Simbakade here, and you are listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. Today, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm going to be speaking with our head of MLOps here at FeatureForm, Mikiko. And before I get further, Mikiko, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hey everyone, my name is Mikiko Baisley, and I joined FeatureForm pretty recently, let's say around last October, as head of MLOps, as Simba mentioned. Prior to joining FeatureForm, I've worked a number of roles as a data analyst, data scientist, and even more recently as like an MLOps engineer working on the MailChimp ML platform team. So was on the MailChimp platform team. I've also worked in a ton of different industries, like you name it, real estate tech, HR tech, anti-piracy, which, yeah, I know I feel bad about that, but, you know, a girl's got to pay rent. (laughs) solar, even, for example, like 3D design modeling, which has become more relevant for a company like Autodesk. So really super happy to finally, you know, have this conversation on the podcast. I know we've been talking about doing this forever. So I'm really excited to be able to have you on. Man, there's so much to talk about. I would love to start maybe by talking about you you started your career or not started your career, but you kind of went and made the jump from more applied data scientist to more ML engineer. I'd love to like first jump into that transition, that difference that you saw between being a data scientist and ML engineer. Yeah, let's just start there. Yeah, it's funny because when I've talked to other like MLOps engineers or the platform engineer types, everyone's origin story really starts off from the story of trying to move your model from a Jupyter notebook to something that's actually in production. And specifically that moment came to me kind of early on, right before I think quarantine hit, I was working as a data scientist focused on growth marketing at Livongo, which was soon to be acquired by this company called Teladoc, which was involved in telemedicine and was considered one of the biggest like telemedicine companies in the US at least. So I worked for Livongo. Our main focus was really on like IoT data for people with chronic conditions, specifically with diabetes, hypertension, and there's a few others. We were just starting to get into like kidney failure. And essentially the way we did that was Livongo created a glucose measure or a, a diabetes monitor. And so we'd get that information, you know, analyze it and then try to make the patients or the, the users aware that, hey, you know, you might be having like a spike. So my particular focus, though, at that company was actually trying to get people enrolled into the programs. So at Lovongo, we would partner with companies like, for example, Home Depot or a few others where they were either self-insured or even maybe they're part of Medicare, Medicaid. And so my goal was to, number one, make sure that when the company sent out any emails or even mail, like they were, they were actually dealing with mail, make sure that we understood, well, first off, whether or not someone was going to sign up and get enrolled into the program. Secondly, what were the potential factors as to why they wouldn't sign up? So yeah, so there's like a number of things we were trying to understand. You know, we wanted to get people enrolled in these health programs that we really believe would, you know, improve their lives, especially with chronic conditions. And of course, you know, in that instance or in that kind of scenario, what you really want is you want to be able to very quickly segment, you know, users or patients who are going to enroll or not enroll. And you want to be able to very quickly deliver that to 
our nurses, to our in-service caretakers, etc. So they kind of need that information sooner rather than later. And this is especially true if you're trying to look at like spikes in their glucose or A1C for diabetes. So being able to have those inferences and predictions served as real-time as possible, whether it's truly real-time or whether it's in fact more of like a batch process, was really important. And of course, when I was, you know, first trying to develop predictive models, I had come out of like a boot camp prior, you know, to that. But the actual like the deployment and the serving and, and monitoring was really just not talked about or taught. And I'm not blaming the boot camp for it, but I think those are really, really complicated problems. And a lot of times we just did not have the either engineering resources or even like the experience on the engineering side, dealing with machine learning to be able to kind of like get those models in production. So I was doing a lot of bootstrapping and I kind of saw people around me, even some of like the senior data scientists having that same issue. And I kind of realized I like, look, this is actually like a, a real bottleneck for whatever reasons. And it's something that I really want to work on. I feel like it was really valuable because no matter what, I could create the most beautiful models in the world or the most beautiful analyses. But if I couldn't actually get it in front of people in a scalable way, my value as a data scientist was going to be severely like bottlenecked and limited. Got it. And so that kind of, I guess... You started seeing that problem, the ML engineering problem. It sounds like that's kind of what drove you to to want to work on that problem in particular, kind of moving to the ML engineering side at MailChimp. Yeah, absolutely. And a huge part of it too was I noticed that there was really this like early on, there was this kind of gap between like data science practitioners or people who are building these data science or machine learning assets and the deployment and the scaling layer. How do we standardize and how do we like you know, how do we make this into a practice that can really be enabled? And so I was like super interested in that, especially since I was sort of like, you know, boot camp grad, self-taught and formally taught. I wanted to really kind of understand, you know, like what are ways that we can enable like experimentation and innovation at scale? And so, yeah, so that's when I started saying like, okay, I want to kind of pivot more to the platform side, start to make those moves and then join the MailChimp team to do exactly that kind of work. You talked about value both on the data science side and the ML ops side. On the data science side, you mentioned kind of the ML ops was bottlenecking your, your ability to create value as a data scientist. I want to first go into that piece. Like as the macro environment is changing, people, especially like data scientists, I think are, are all, many of them are looking around and trying to kind of say, hey, how am I bringing value to my organization? And trying to be able to show that. So my first question to you is, how does a data scientist do that? Like, where do you feel like data scientists provide value to an organization? Yeah, and actually, I, I would argue that what I was being bottlenecked on was a, a lack of MLOps practice and tooling. I would say that was actually the bigger bottleneck. In terms of where data scientists bring value in an organization, so I remember a few years ago, and it's, it's, it's funny how stuff just changes like what people think is really important in a data scientist role. A few years ago, everyone was all about the full stack data scientists, kind of similar to how they're all about like the the full stack, like web unicorn or what have you. And everyone was saying like, look, data scientists should be able to do infrastructure. They should be able to do Kubernetes and Jenkins and, and Terraform and 
et cetera, right? And I really don't think that's where data scientists excel. So for me personally, I was very blessed in being able to see like really awesome data scientists at Teladoc, you know, who created some amazing like analyses and research on like what were some of the risk factors for our chronic condition population with regards to COVID. So there was some fantastic work there. I also saw some like really awesome data scientists at MailChimp, you know, where so some of the the really awesome projects that they were doing. So even before, I'm trying to think, this was maybe around the time Stable Diffusion came out. And I think you know, a little bit after, and maybe right before ChatGPT3 was being announced, or sorry, uh, GPT3 was being announced, not ChatGPT, but GPT3 was being announced. So right in between that time period, for example, some of our data scientists, they were actually trying to figure out ways to create business value using, you know, some of the existing generative AI models out there for small, medium-sized, you know, business users, MailChimp. And I remember there is a, like, there's a very specific set of models that they were working on to power what was called Crave, you know, power what's called Crave Assistant. And specifically what Creative Assistant does is in order to kind of help small, medium-sized business owners, like relieve the burden of, for example, having to create email content, like the images, the the copy, rather than having to go like hire and, and organize like a designer off of Fiverr to do that. Instead, what someone could do was they could use Creative Assistant to scrape their own website or business or to get all the design elements out of their existing site or storefront with MailChimp. And they could then create pretty easily, like in a UI, generate different email layouts. They could generate different like social media layouts. They could generate different photographic assets, like color, copy from a number of the machine learning pipelines that were running. And so, you know, I thought that was like awesome work the team at MailChimp, they were showing that you, they were proving business value, you know, with like cutting edge ML. And a huge part of why they were able to do that was one, they had a very strong understanding of ML systems. For example, ML systems, ML algorithms specifically. For example, how would you design like a recommendation pipeline? What are the best like algorithms for like certain tasks? How do you measure those algorithms? What are some things you need to look for and worry about in the data? As well as like, for example, being able to interface with the product teams, being able to interface with marketing. So I think there's a lot of things that data scientists can do. Largely it's adding the creative innovation and the awareness of you know research that's going on I just don't feel like infrastructure is where they should be spending their time or even like figuring out what the happy path is for like getting malls deployed. Like they should really be spending time on experimentation and training. Got it. So just to kind of repeat back to you what I think I heard, it almost sounds like what you're saying is like most of the data scientists' values, it's in doing data science. It's in taking data and finding insights from it or even feeding those insights back into like product features like you mentioned creative assistant. Is that fair? Is that how you how you should think about it? Yeah, absolutely. What's the difference? Like I know like you were talking about how you were working on the growth side. And so on the growth side, it, it seemed like it would kind of be more internal facing. And there's also kind of this external facing, I think people call it like a product data scientist now, where you're kind of building like a recommender system is a very obvious example of this. 
Like, do you feel like there's these different classes of data science or do you feel like it's all kind of one umbrella and that any data scientist can jump between them? So I feel like when there is specialization, it's it's more about domain as opposed to like external internal. I do feel like this external internal thing, like I, I see it and I do feel like that's almost like a maladaptive practice where it should be about where a data scientist should be specializing is in the maybe domain and the types of problems that they're equipped to work on as opposed to whether they're working on stuff that's internal versus external. I think that's for the platform engineers to be able to enable data scientists like in a company to create models like regardless of where like the ultimate outcome or the the end goal is. Like, I mean, I'm kind of curious. Like, I feel like I see data scientists when they do eventually specialize, it's like computer vision versus like NLP versus forecasting. I mean, do you feel like that's like a fair sort of a fair summarization? I've actually never thought of it this way, but I actually think you're, you're, you're spot on. Why I haven't thought of it this way is my background was much more in recommender systems, which are almost always external. And these have a wide variety of problems that just don't exist in what we were calling internal problems. They can't, there's some overlap, but I just think that recommender systems is a specific specialization that typically just happens to be tied to like what we're calling external. But if you think about like pure vision, like there are many use cases I can imagine. Let's say you're having, or let's say like you're doing NLP, like document processing, right? Like you could be doing document processing because you are providing people, I know, like an autocorrect on their email or because you are trying to do like, like analytics for an internal team. And I feel like as a data scientist, assuming that the MLS platform was very strong, you know, most of the techniques you're going to be using are very, are the same. The things that are different is like the scale and other things, which again, in theory, are sort of kind of abstracted away by the MLS platform or the ML platform you're using. I think that's right. I feel like, you know, as a data scientist, like you might become specialized in, in the type of data, the type of model, the type of problem space you're working in. and Hey, I'm dealing with a million things that I'm external, or hey, I'm like outputting a spreadsheet. Almost shouldn't matter. It's, it's like if you're truly trying to extract the pure value a data scientist can provide, but no one else can provide, you kind of want to just get them as close as possible to like driving insights, building models, and everything else is kind of a detail and all the other things about external and internal. But they do exist. Those are just more maybe artifacts of like just the fact that we're so naive in how we build our ML platforms today. It's just there's so much to be done. It's almost like I could actually we could almost draw the same analogy in building like, let's say a typical dev service, right? If you're building an internal dev service, chances are the scale is way lower. You know, like the UI does not have to be as good. Like there's all this stuff that doesn't matter as much if it is internal. As opposed to if you're building like, you know, at the external, there's this whole new problem space. But as time has gone on, like, sure, we can ignore more things if we're building internal and external, if you're just based on scale. But I mean, nowadays, it's all like Kubernetes anyway. They're all like services anyway. It's all in Docker. It's all written in the same languages. Like over time, it's almost we've, we've gotten rid of that differentiation. The only difference is that your requirement space might be slightly different, but that's really all that the only place it comes up. Yeah, and I mean, that's like, 
it's kind of interesting, right? Because if you think about it, like a platform or an ML stack that's done well, the data science shouldn't even have to think about the implementation details other than their work on like the training experimentation and, you know, a good chunk of like the data side. And yet I feel like I've definitely seen teams where for whatever reason, you know, they just get stuck in the tooling or the infrastructure of the platform. And they essentially have to like relearn really kind of bad or like atypical patterns that might seem like very intuitive to like pure engineers. But from a data science perspective, like some patterns are just are, are just like absolutely painful. Yeah, I think there's a lot of differences just between data scientists and engineers. Like data science is inherently a, there's no clear path. It's not like every iteration you do is better or closer to where you're going to end up. Or in software engineering, typically, like you're kind of moving in a, you know where you're going, right? You're like moving towards like solving this requirement set. With data science, like it's a lot more of a windy path and a lot more kind of like experimentation doesn't really exist in software engineering, like not in the same way. Like you might experiment on product features, but you don't really like, you run tests, but you don't really experiment in the sense of like, oh, like I'm just going to try this giant approach and then oh let's just throw it away and try this approach like it just doesn't happen you don't throw things away you know throw away 99% of what you do in software engineering that would be awful where in data science that would be pretty normal if you threw away most of what you did because it's all about like learning more so that you can eventually build the best thing but yeah I, I actually going into like the ML stack you know we did talk about you know if these patterns are different and I think we we've both talked in depth before about how you know, the ML stack and the ML platform should really be focused on the data scientist, their end user. So if they're, you know, if they hate it, then you kind of aren't doing your job as the ML platform team. But maybe just to even like broaden that question a bit for you, what do you think is the goal of an ML platform? Like what are the key metrics or the kind of maybe even the North Star of an ML platform? Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, something that kind of interests me and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about this later, is how often it kind of feels like ML platforms are almost not treated seriously as platforms or as like even like the concept of like platform as a product, like how often ML platforms are not treated as products. So at least like I've kind of worked on all different kind of maturity layers of the ML stack from trying to trying to create an ML stack, which was fun for a very early stage uh, real estate tech startup which was hard, um, that was where I found out that you, in fact, cannot write a production data pipeline using pandas and that that is a very bad way to go. You know, so, you know, early stage to to late stage of, you know, like, for example, MailChimp, I, I thought there's like a few pieces that were kind of a little bit missing, like that bridging between the dev training experimentation to the like serving part was a little bit rough, but I think they, they had 80% to like 90% the way there. In terms of like North Star metrics, so the thing that is kind of fascinating is like for, for like for I guess people who aren't aware, so North Star metrics, and there's also the one metric that matters. So the idea of a North Star metric was a single metric that everyone in a company or business could kind of rally around that including marketing, sales, like revenue, product to kind of like keep the boat going forward. And I feel like we do a very bad job of measuring like ROI or even like efficacy 
when it comes to ML platforms. Like, for example, there is a, a fun conversation. Or actually, there's, there's been a few conversations, right, in like the MLOps community, but also in like other uh, discords I've seen where people are trying to figure out like what metric to, to measure. Like, should it be like time to deploy? Should it be like deployment frequency? Should it be, you know, change failure rate? Should it be like number of manual tasks or, or what have you? And I think a huge part of it comes down to, we like to conflate project metrics with platform metrics. And very specifically, like a lot of times platform teams, they like to try to measure, they like to kind of try to measure their velocity through how long it takes like projects to get up and running. And that's challenging for a number of reasons. Like one, like data science projects can kind of go like sideways early on. So because there's always this like big cloud, like question mark, I think it's really hard to to peg the like, oh, we're going to peg like the efficacy of our platform to how well the data science pod is getting their project through. And then the second part is I also think we like focus a lot of platform teams, they focus on like too many metrics that are not tied to the like direct behavior that they're trying to measure. Like they're measuring kind of all these like baseline metrics that sort of won't even tell you, for example, like deployment frequency to some degree that's like related to like the size of your data science team. Same with kind of mean time to restore is like could be an interesting one, but at the same time, ideally your models aren't breaking. So I think I think there's like a couple areas where like we could kind of streamline our understanding of metrics. And I, I don't necessarily feel like the Dora SRE platform metrics of like yeah, like time to restore, change failure rate, lead time for change, deployment frequency. Like, I don't think these are really like adequate or they're super relevant for measuring like, what is a data scientist relationship with an ML platform? Yeah, it's almost like SRE, again, like software in general, like you write your code and you test it and you expect the business logic to be correct. But in any distributed system, which is where SREs are going to be. There's just so much that can go wrong. Like, you know, it's like you can have a network outage, you can have a partition, you can have like weird delays in packets where just like all of a sudden, like you get these really strange race conditions. And so I feel like a lot of what SRE is focused on is solving those sorts of problems where it's just like, hey, there's no way we can write our, it just doesn't make sense to write your code so it's actually perfect. Let's just write it so it's, good enough and just let the platform kind of abstract away like oh yeah like one in every million requests on Netflix is a 404 like that's fine like we can accept that the, the UI will just refresh it that's okay it's better to do that and just like handle the error really well than to try to write the code in such a way where it's like perfect because honestly it can't be like if there's just a certain type of network partition it just actually can't work whereas it sounds like what you're saying which I, I really like is for data science, the problem space is less about like, hey, let's release things quickly and make sure they don't break. It sounds like a lot of the focus, there's just different stages that just almost don't exist, like experimentation and even just like data analysis and the type of things that can break. And It's almost like things don't break in a very binary way too. Like yeah. a model might just drift and then all of a sudden you end up with like, hey, we just might want to retrain or we might want to, you know, change our training set in such a way where 
it better encapsulates the behavior we're seeing in production today. So you mentioned metrics that aren't great or, or maybe are imperfect. Is there such a thing as like kind of a, a set of metrics or even just a single North Star metric for an ML platform team? You know, if you had to say one, or do you think that in general, what does it depend on? Like if I'm running an ML platform team and I'm trying to decide, hey, like how do we measure our efficacy? What do I do? Yeah, and I mean, I think it, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about this afterwards. I, I do think it depends on like the stage of the, it's almost like the maturity of the data science and like ML org. And then the stage they are in terms of like implementing tooling and platforms. Because like, for example, what's really interesting is that so much of the conversation about stacks has really been driven by the Google scale companies. But I think what we're seeing, for example, even with feature form, right, is there are so many companies that want to build ML platforms that just don't even fit. They're not the big tech, like, co-companies. Some of them are startups. Some of them are midsize. Some of them, for example, have, they've maybe only deployed a few models and some of them are, you know, have deployed like hundreds of models. For some folks, they have like one data scientist who's also the data person. And for other teams, they have like 10 to, to 20 data scientists, right? So I feel like there's so many different requirements on stacks. I don't think there's one single metric that's ever going to be right for all the stages. But I think like if we're thinking more about platforms as products, we should be thinking, for example, about like, you know, how would you measure a product? How would you measure like adoption and engagement? Reliability metrics are great. But really, like if you are trying to develop a platform that people love, I mean, sometimes also I think the metric could just be like how many people are using it, right? But I don't know, I'd be kind of curious, like, what do you think about the different flavors and like maturities of like stacks that are out there? Like, is there, is there a single way to design and, and build a stack? Yeah, there's always like kind of two sets of problems that exist. One is what I would call the kind of, people organization problems, which is like getting a group of data scientists to work together productively or even in themselves. It's like being productive alone and organized and giving them the tools they need to do that. And then there is almost uh, the infrastructure problems where it's things like I need to hit this level of latency. I need to be able to handle, you know, this much data. I need to be able, it's usually very binary. Those look like more traditional uh I guess like North Star KPIs, like metrics, like, hey, like, you know, we need to be able to handle this much data by, you know, and this latency, you know, with this P99, you know, latency. And those are great. And you do, you know, depending on type of company, whether big or small, you might have that. It just really depends. Like if you're a SaaS company, you probably don't, even though you might have like a lot of revenue and a lot of employees, a lot of data scientists, chances are like your amount of data is dwarfed by even a much smaller B2C company or fintech company, which just typically have way, way more data way earlier on. And you actually can see that in the fact that they just have way more data scientists per headcount as a ratio. Even like early on, they'll have like big data science teams. And so that's the first set of problems, which I think there is a place for it. And it's like the Google scale thing is, is a good way to think of it, but it's almost not necessarily how big of a company you are. It's almost like, scale of data and where are you deployed? Like if you're doing real-time recommendations on a ton of users, like nowadays you can be a small company and still have a problem. And then the other set of problems, which are like the organizational problems, are very much going to be correlated to how big a team you are 
And typically also there's other aspects like how regulated are you? If you're in banking, you probably have a lot more regulation and you'd be much more likely to make your data science team like less productive to make sure that they were not, you know, going against regulation and vice versa in the sense of like, I'd rather make sure that we are correct of our regulation, even if it requires a few more steps from data scientists than to risk, you know, them kind of self-managing it. So that's one piece. And I think that piece looks very similar to like, you know, kind of the SRE type metrics. The other types of metrics, which I think are way more important typically and way less understood are the exact ones you're talking about, which are the product metrics. And engagement's obviously a good one here. I mean, I would be very, very surprised if any like MLOps platform lead has ever run an NPS score on their platform of their internal data scientists. It would be super interesting, right? And you would learn so much, right? Just go ask your data scientists, like, do you like our platform? Why do you like it? Why do you not like it? Like, it's almost like the, the age-old startup, like, have you talked to your users? It's like, no. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe start there. And then, you know, you'll probably learn a million things you didn't know before just by talking to your users. You know, we have funny stories where we uh, would talk to a data scientist who was using uh, feature form or looking at using feature form. And they're like, yeah, we don't have a feature store. And then I had one situation where this happened. And then a month later, the person emails me and says, yeah, I was like starting to use it more. And then I was notified that we actually have an internal feature store. And then from my perspective, it was so funny because it's just like, it wasn't a huge data science team. I'm like, wait, so there's a whole platform team building a feature store, but you, one of like the, you know, dozens of data scientists are completely unaware that all this stuff exists internally. It just shows that, you know, like the platform team is building for the sake of building and maybe focus on these other metrics of what's our, our latency, what's our uptime and not really worry about, hey, like, are we actually being used? Do people like using it? Are people going to use it? Because if you don't have that, it's not going to stick and you're going to end up with like 45 different ML platforms, which I've seen at some of the large banks where they have dozens of different ML platforms. And there's never really one standard rule in law because they all kind of have own problems, you know, and none of them, I think, ran in that product focused mindset. Yeah, it's really fascinating how like enablement is always like the last mile of like an ML platform, like tool that like just no one ever wants to do, even as simple as like making sure you have a clear centralized documentation for where you can find things, for example, like, oh, what were the, you know, the models that were trained? Oh, like what features are being used within models? It's, it's really fascinating how hard some of those problems are of, of just making stuff usable and like something to me that's like really kind of fascinating and I feel like so many people especially when they look at the most recent like mad landscape of 2023 just feel this like absolute sense of chaos looking at that map and to me what's really fascinating is like if we were to if we were to go back and look at all the tools that are on there I would be so curious about like that NPS score, like the end users of like the tools and all that. Like what's the NPS score of, for example, like someone who's using um, like a, a data orchestration tool or a training or model registry tool or, or what have you? Because the current kind of landscape, it, it just sort of like lays out everything, but not all those tools are equal. It's fascinating because I think when companies and teams are looking at risk and tool adoption, they'll look at all those tools as being the exact same when there's actually a lot of differences between those tools and the implication on like which ones are best for like which stacks or use cases. 
Yeah, I bet you if you built, take a mad, the mad landscape, show it to, let's call it a thousand data scientists, ask them to point out or circle the tools that they love. Like you would take the mad landscape and probably drop it down to like 15 products or something. Like it's really very part. I mean, we're still early. It's not like there's a lot of products that, you know, are, are, are finding their way and that have a ton of potential. But I do think that, especially if you count internal products, like the right metric for a lot of companies, once you check off the, the metrics about latency and all those are like checkoffs, right? Just like, do we, you know, oh, you need, you know, not, you know, four nines of uptime. Like, do we have that? Yes or no? If no, like solve. <laughs> if yes, then you're good, right? Like it, it, chances are, I mean, it depends, but, but in a lot of these situations, it's kind of binary, like even latency, right? Like you can make it better, but let's say you have a recommender system and you have a feature, you need to serve a feature in under eight milliseconds. Let's say you're at eight milliseconds or seven milliseconds and you drop it to five. Well, if it takes the page a certain amount of time to load anyway, you haven't really made anything better by making that metric better, right? So a lot of these metrics are also very binary. But a metric that is not binary and is surely a good one to focus on if you're building or leading an ML platform team is NPS and engagement. Just like, do people like using this thing? Obviously, it needs to solve all the other problems. But the UX is, is in my opinion, the hardest part to solve. That's why products like Terraform, and you know you can name a lot of Snowflake is another good example. Like why is Snowflake such a big company? Well, they just really figured out NPS. Like people love using Snowflake because it just works and it's really simple. And I feel like the closer ML ops platforms can move to that, a lot of times they want to add that new feature, that bell and whistle. And a lot of times it's just like make it easier, make it simpler, just solve the problem so that you check off all these binary check marks. But as a data scientist, it just feels natural. It fits my flow. It fits my way of thinking. Yeah, and I think you know that's one of the reasons why I was like so excited to join FeatureForm and to work with everyone here is because like I feel like I feel like in some ways MLOps is kind of failing the original like sort of end users of MLOps, which is the data scientists. Like, I we should be making it really easy for them to do the right things, and I feel like. As an ecosystem, it's questionable how much we've really succeeded with that. I think asking data scientists to learn like infrastructure was maybe not the right direction. I don't know. Like I, I'm super excited for kind of like the new cycle of like MLOps tools, both in like the orchestration and workflows, in terms of like kind of getting back to that state of like making it easy and seamless for data scientists to to do the right things, to make themselves more productive, and also to, you know, uh, so like the platform engineers are pulling their hair out a little bit less. I think one thing that's great that's happening is with the hype around MLOps, like the, the, the bad type of the hype around MLOps finally starting to like fall out. Like all that's left is like value creation. Like, Anyone who's still building MLOps and still cares about MLOps is like not doing it because there's you know a ton of VC money or there's another unicorn every month. Because if you want to be doing that, you'd be doing that in the AI now. If you're still doing like quote unquote boring MLOps, it's because you actually care about the problem. And if you actually care about the problem, like I think what we're seeing a lot of now is people finally doing a lot of what we're talking about and treating their MLOps platform as a product. 
and not as like like this weird like low level infra tool. It's like it's a product that data scientists use. And yeah, I'm really excited for it. And I think that I'm excited for us as an ecosystem beyond just like feature form to actually start to make data scientists' lives easier and to get to this point where it's almost like a, a duh, like a like CICD. Like there was a time where it was like, oh, that's like crazy that you do that, you know? And nowadays it's like crazy if you don't. And I think we're going to see the same thing with animal platforms. It's like it becomes so easy. It becomes so part of the workflow that everyone just uses it because that's just how you do data science. And like when you do a boot camp, it's not like the MLOps chapter is like a whole another complicated chapter. It just fits in with the original things. Like the way you do it from the beginning just inherently is built to be scaled, to be reliable, to easily fit into a platform. We already do that with Docker. We do that with a lot of tools and, and traditional software engineering. And I think we're going to see the same thing in, in, in data science. Mikiko, I, I feel like we could talk all day and we probably will continue to talk after this. But um, I do know we're at time. And I just want to thank you for, for making the time, hopping on and chatting with me for everyone to listen to. Yeah, this was great. And luckily, since I'm part of the team now, hopefully we'll have like future conversations too. I think we will. I think we will. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.